the leg here. It's only the beginning. Before we get started, I have a, a few uh, people I want to thank uh, for bringing uh, Mr. Echohawk to our campus today. First of all, Kim Christen from the Department of English and Barbara Aston, who's the director of the Plateau Center here at WSU. Both of them were instrumental in helping us uh, arrange this talk today. We also have several co-sponsors today's event. That includes the College of Education, Serio, the Plateau Center, and the Department of English here at, at Washington State University. Uh, what we'll do is uh, Mr. Echohawk's going to speak for about an hour. Uh, following that, we'll have 15 to 20 minutes for some question and answers. And then uh, following that, we have a, a reception set up for uh, Mr. Echohawk over in the Foley Institute, which is in Bryan Hall on the third floor. Uh, Walter Echohawk is a, a Native American attorney, tribal judge, author, activist, and law professor. As perhaps the nation's premier Native American rights lawyer since 1973, Mr. Echohawk has presented tribes on a, a variety of important issues ranging from treaty and water rights to religious freedom and repatriation rights. He was also instrumental in passage of many of the modern landmark uh, laws involving Native American rights, including the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990 and the American Indian Religious Freedoms Act amendments in 1994. In addition to his work as a lawyer, Mr. Echohawk is a prolific author. He has written extensively about the rise of modern Indian nations. His most recent book is In the Light of Justice, The Rise of Human Rights in Native America and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He will uh, be discussing and signing that book uh, at an event tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. in the Cub Auditorium. Uh, and now I will turn the time over to Mr. Echohawk. Oh, okay. That's relatively painless. <laughs> wow. I hope I'm in the right uh, room. I don't know. I'm not used to speaking to such a large, uh, distinguished audience. And I hope you don't expect me to play the piano. But I was a little bit intimidated when I saw the piano here because I don't know how to play. <laughs> but um, good afternoon, everybody. I'm very uh, pleased to be here. Thank you so much for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, <clears throat> I want to uh, thank the Foley Institute and uh, the university, um, uh, as well as the Native American program and uh, Kim, you know, for uh, your um, hard work and getting me here, as well as Barbara, you know, for all of the um, um, hospitality that's been rendered to me on my uh, visit here to Pullman and. Uh, I want to thank uh, each and every one of you all for uh, being here with me uh, this afternoon. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, this is the second time I've been to uh, Pullman. <clears throat> As I mentioned, I uh, uh, came here in the late 70s, but I just set out on the runway. I was in a full full-blown uh, uh, airliner that had been departed or de uh, detoured, I guess, to the runway here. And so we, uh, I think we had a mechanical error or something, and we just sat on the runway for three hours. <laughs> um, so this is my second visit here, and I think this is a much more pleasant uh, occasion <laughs> for me. Uh, but I do want to thank each and every one of you um, 
for being here. Uh, and uh, I look forward not only uh, to this, uh, this, this afternoon, this evening, uh, but also the book lecture uh, tomorrow as well. And I'm just very uh, grateful and pleased to be here. <clears throat> and my title for uh, uh, this afternoon's uh, lecture is Toward a Land and Sea Ethic. And um, I think that this is a very timely uh, topic uh, to begin thinking about the development of a land and sea ethic for the United States, a truly American land ethic. Uh, and this is a, a timely topic for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, as everyone knows, uh, and this is not news to anyone in this room or this campus or this community, uh, the world is facing a very grave uh, environmental crisis that is mounting day by day, hour by hour, a growing crisis that uh, casts a pale over everything else that we do and uh, has reached a, uh, uh, a point to where it's, I, in my view, uh, no longer business as usual. And so uh, uh, I, I think it's very timely for us as a nation to uh, begin thinking about a land ethic. That is how we, uh, as human beings in a modern industrialized nation, uh, should comport ourselves to the natural world, to the land and the animals and plants that grow upon it, uh, as well as to the ocean uh, and all life in the ocean and life supported by the ocean. Uh, and I think that's part of our unfinished business uh, here in the United States as far as nation building is concerned. Uh, because I think it's important for each nation uh, to forge, or each society to forge its own uh, ethic for looking at the land. And we simply haven't done that here in the United States. Uh, and uh, I think that this is part of our nation building, to forge a uh, land ethic with broad consensus about how we as a society should look at the land and the ocean. Secondly, um, <clears throat> the second development that I think makes this a timely discussion is the advent of human rights principles in US uh, federal Indian law and policy. Um, the UN uh, General Assembly in the year 2007 approved this landmark uh, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, a human rights instrument uh, that was 30 years, almost 30 years in the making, in the UN Human Rights uh, Framework. Uh, and um, it was approved by the United States or endorsed by the United States in the year 2010. Um, and so uh, there's 150 nations today around the world that has endorsed this uh, 
uh, human rights framework for uh, looking at the world's indigenous peoples. And I believe that uh, since it's now technically a part of U.S. policy, that uh, as our nation uh, begins to enter the human rights uh, era of federal Indian law and policy and beginning to implement these uh, uh, indigenous human rights in, as far as uh, they include um, the um, human right, indigenous human rights to indigenous habitat and the ways of life that go along with that, cultural ways of life that go along with indigenous habitat, that there's a congruency between recognizing and protecting these kinds of rights and fostering the conditions uh, for developing a land ethic. And so I think the, uh, the advent of these two developments uh, makes it very timely for our nation as a matter of nation building uh, to uh, move toward the development of a uh, broad-based, uh, with wide consensus ethic for looking at the land and the sea. And so what I wanted to do um, this afternoon is cover basically four areas with you. Um, the first is I want to talk about the need for a land and sea ethic. Secondly, I want to try to identify some of the reasons uh, why a land and sea ethic uh, has been so hard to achieve in the United States. And then thirdly, I'd like to offer some thoughts <clears throat> about how we could go about uh, developing a national uh, land and sea ethic. And then finally, I'd like to uh, offer a, a few concluding observations. So, get a drink of water here. I'm all wired up, so. Would you like that over at the podium? Or water? Is there a place to put it? Ah, okay, yeah. So with that, let me uh, <clears throat> first uh, uh, start with a premise. I have two premises for this lecture. The first being that stewards must have a clear set of core values based on widespread consensus that guides the way society looks at the land and to the ocean. And furthermore, it seems to me that the paramount goal of our nation in the 21st century is to forge a land and sea ethic from the very best, the very finest of our diverse wisdom traditions uh, in our nation and fit them to the American setting so that we can, our generation at long last, uh, forge a truly American way of looking at the land and to the sea. And as I mentioned, I think that the forging of such an ethic is simply a part of our 
nation building uh, uh, activities for every nation. Uh, and it's certainly, in my view, the unfinished business of our great uh, American experiment in democracy to forge such an ethic for our peoples in this corner of Mother Earth. <clears throat> and so uh, with those uh, premises, uh, let me turn to my first uh, chore here, and that is to talk about the need for an ethic. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, to do that, I want to draw your attention to the nature of the environmental problem uh, that is currently facing um, the human race uh, worldwide. And uh, th this uh, problem certainly is not news to anyone, but it, 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 it bears repeating, I think, for purposes of this lecture. But we currently live in what is called the Anthropocene era. This is an era in human history our world history, I should say, uh, that's marked by uh, human changes to the Earth's systems. And this uh, Anthropocene era is not a very pretty picture. Uh, it has uh, seven elements to it that I'd like to uh, talk about a little bit. Uh, the first uh, element or problem, I guess I should say, is the mass extinction of animals and plants. Uh, this is occurring at an unprecedented rate in the history of the world, and it's caused by man. Scientists tell us that the Earth's uh, biota are facing the sixth great extinction event. Uh, but it's the first one that's caused by man, um, and it's uh, producing a world with less and less diversity in it. And it happened on my watch, the, of my generation, I think in the last 50 or 60 years or so. So I apologize for that. My bad. <laughs> <coughs> the second... Uh, problem uh, in our Anthropocene era is the destruction and degradation of the native plant community, native plant communities around the world through the deforestation, clear-cutting, through steel plows being drugged through fragile indigenous plant communities, through uh, unchecked uh, development, uh, we are literally uh, destroying the sacred living covering of Mother Earth, acre by acre. The third uh, problem that I think forms this, characterizes this era is polluting the land. And uh, this is, seems to be going on, especially in my home state of Oklahoma, uh, most recently through this uh, fracking that's going on. That is a, a very dangerous, uh, short-sighted uh, 
effort to wring every last drop of oil from the earth through uh, injecting uh, chemicals, high-powered injection into the earth and to fracture it. And, and uh, so today uh, in Oklahoma, um, we have all of these earthquakes now, almost weekly. We have earthquakes as a result of this fracking and it uh, is very commonplace uh, uh, worldwide. In uh, the year 2010, there were 2.5 million uh, fracking oil wells. 60% uh, of all the new oil wells going in worldwide are of that nature. Uh, and there's a, it brings about a great danger of uh, contaminating our freshwater supply, our groundwater. And I live on a well, water well, and uh, it just seems that, um, you know, in Oklahoma, in Payne County, where I live, one of the large oil companies has said they plan to put a, a fracking oil well on every square mile of our county. Uh, which is a good prescription for uh, devastating our fresh water supply. And it just seems that in Oklahoma, we didn't learn anything from the Dust Bowl. Uh, we're now in a fracking bowl. Um, the fourth uh, problem in this uh, era that we live is polluting the ocean. Uh, if you recall the uh, BP oil spill a few years back in the Gulf of Mexico, I looked at a map uh, and uh, it uh, indicated all of the offshore oil drilling rigs and it looked like one vast oil field. And I wondered, uh, I was surprised by that, I wondered who allowed all of these oil wells to be drilled in the Gulf of Mexico? Is this how we've decided to comport ourselves to the ocean? Um, the fifth uh, problem in this uh, era that we live is the depletion of the world's fisheries. Biologists tell us that most of the world's fisheries are either uh, fully exploited or overexploited. And this isn't just a problem of overfishing or overwhaling, uh, but there's some, so, some very uh, severe habitat problems that are going on uh, within the ocean and the coral reefs um, that are producing some accelerated changes in the ocean's uh, systems. Um, a cascade of uh, responses to life in the ocean that's bewildering our scientists. The sixth uh, problem is Father Sky. And Father Sky, what's going on in Father Sky is basically the elephant in the room, uh, global warming. Uh, thanks to the uh, rising greenhouse emissions from the industrialized uh, nations, we now live in a warming world. And I think that's bad news for the human race. It's certainly bad news for the islanders that live uh, in the ocean and the coastal uh, zones of the world. And then these uh, six factors um, that I've just mentioned um, 
combine to produce the seventh problem, which is a, a large-scale global problem. Scientists tell us that the Earth is now changing into a different state, marching towards the extreme end of sustainability, life as we know it. Um, and we've witnessed a, a very uh, striking climate change in the last 50 years, the most rapid um, transformation of the human relationship to the natural world um, in the history of mankind. Uh, and it's, it's kind of occurred on my watch as well as Orland's watch. You know, we're, we're older gentlemen, and uh, this all happened in the last 50 years, folks. Um, but these human impacts are propelling uh, accelerated and unprecedented uh, rates of uh, change in the Earth's processes, uh, bringing us uh, or amounting to or exceeding the great forces of nature uh, by an or at least an order of magnitude. And so uh, the scientists are saying that the Earth is now operating in a no analog state in the terms of the dynamics of, of uh, functioning of the Earth's systems. And it's very uh, bewildering to uh, our scientists. Some of the reports that are coming out uh, worry about a high risk of catastrophic uh, failure of important Earth uh, life systems. Very alarming to me personally, and I think to a lot of people that have looked at these this uh, data. And so uh, I recently went to a, a scientific conference on the rising of the ocean in Fiji, and uh, all of the scientists in the Pacific Rim were there lot that dealt with uh, global warming and problems of the rising uh, sea. And um, they, they were uh, sounding the alarm. They were sounding the alarm and girding themselves for a mother of all uh, campaigns on behalf of science, uh, forming uh, what they were calling a uh, global environmental science, a sort of an interdisciplinary approach to see, try to figure out what's going on. Um, but the problem is that no one is listening. This research is largely invisible. Uh, you have the spectacle of uh, scientists talking only to other scientists, uh, and their data largely going unheeded by the public. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that uh, science can't solve this crisis alone. It simply can't spark the uh, uh, fundamental changes in behavior of individuals or changes in behavior by nations. And I believe that to foster the conditions for changes of behavior, <clears throat> we must first develop a clear and compelling land and sea ethic. And I believe that's our paramount challenge 
and that all other matters pale in their importance. Because I think a uh, uh, land and sea ethic is a foundational uh, 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 matter here from which to address these problems um, in solving uh, this uh, environmental crisis. So far, we just haven't been able to solve this environmental crisis. It's gotten worse, not better. Um, despite some uh, changing values that we see out there in the American public, uh, evidenced in our landmark uh, public land laws, uh, conservation statutes, water quality, air quality uh, legislation, um, but uh, these are but baby steps, it seems to me, that are being outpaced and overtaken by the uh, pace of environmental uh, destruction that's going on. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, you know, uh, why is this environmental problem getting worse and not better? And I think that the root uh, problem here is, going back to my thesis, premise here is that stewards simply have to have a clear set of core values based on widespread consensus um, that guide the way that the public and our society and the federal agencies look at the land. Um, a land ethic, and it shouldn't be too hard to find uh, a land ethic. Um, because as we know, it's axiomatic that uh, land um, shapes human society. It uh, informs our culture, makes us fully human, and it lies at the center of every uh, civilization. Uh, and I think the same can be said for the ocean, uh, for the islanders and people that live on the uh, rim of the oceans, uh, the, they, they know that the ocean is the source of all life and the lives of the oceanic people are shaped by the sea and it's a predominant influence uh, on their cultures and ways of life. And it seems to me that a way, the way that a society looks at the land and sea tells us much about the character of that particular society, reveals much, it's very telling. But the fact remains, in, at least in my opinion, that, that we need a, a land and sea ethic because without one, without a, a foundational set of values that we can all see from our heart, <laughs> uh, we simply can't summon uh, the political will or the social will or the economic will uh, to address and actually solve this environmental crisis. It's too expensive, it costs too much money, we have to change our old habits. Um, and so uh, without a real compelling foundation, we just simply don't have the will to address this problem. And that's why it's getting worse and not better. Uh, so I, I feel like uh, such a foundational ethic, uh, it helps humans live a sustainable existence as every civilization must. And I hope we've learned 
uh, from human history that uh, that much, you know, um, because we only need look at the ruins of the failed societies around the world in our human history to, uh, to see the past civilizations that failed to adapt and they uh, were rubbed out, became extinct, and that's a, a failed society. And I, I fear that we're on that pathway. And I think that a, a land and a sea ethic is especially important um, for settler states, colonies or former colonies uh, in colonized lands such as our nation, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, etc. Uh, because a land ethic is a part of a nation building process, helps a society uh, or a nation mature and finish its nation building society to come to terms with the land itself. Uh, and maybe mature from a settler society with a uh, rapacious uh, frontier history into a more just, uh, mature society that has adapted to the land, perhaps as the native people have. And so for all of these reasons, uh, I, uh, I do feel that, uh, that the par our paramount challenge today is to forge a an American land ethic uh, from the very best of our wisdom traditions. We need a land ethic program. Um, here in the university and maybe at the White House and other places to help pull this all together for our peoples. And there's a lot of reasons why a um, land ethic has been so terribly difficult for our nation to achieve. And I want to uh, address some of these, uh, these uh, barriers that I think we face. But um, uh, 66 years ago, the, in, the, in the year of my birth in 1948, Aldo Leopold, uh, who was a very influential uh, ecologist the so-called father of uh, public uh, land, wild, uh, excuse me, public wildlife management, he lamented the absence of a land ethic in 1948. And he wrote, and I quote, there is as yet no ethic dealing with man's relation to the land and to the animals and plants which grow upon it. And he tried to plant the seeds for an, an, uh, a land ethic. Uh, Leopold uh, urged our nation to decolonize the way it looks at the land and to evolve a land ethic uh, as the social product of a mature society. And he hoped that such an ethic would, would change our role uh, from conquerors of the land and the animals and plants which grow on it to becoming a, a member of a biotic land community that coexists on the same land. And he wrote, and I quote, in human history we have learned, I hope, that the conqueror's role is eventually self-defeating. But unfortunately, 
Leopold's land ethic didn't take root in the 20th century. We've seen some progress uh, in the environmental laws I alluded to earlier, some changing social uh, values, uh, but old habits die hard, they really do. And our, our environmental crisis still sits before us today. And in looking at that and contemplating that, the paramount question is how should we as human beings comport ourselves to the land and the animals and plants, to the sea, all life uh, in it and supported by it, and to Father Sky, the air and the atmosphere in the heavens above. That's the paramount question, and it's a hard question for modern industrialized nations to answer uh, because we have no clear and convincing and powerful ethic for determining that relationship and to guide our relations with the natural world. If we were to go to, around the room here and ask that paramount question to each and every person, we would find we have no consensus. Uh, we would have a variety of different uh, opinions, personal opinions, some vague or blank looks, um, and some puzzled expressions, you know, because we don't have a land ethic. Um, and uh, maybe that's axiomatic uh, problem of a diverse society. But there's other reasons as well, and I think there's some very powerful forces at work uh, in our society that uh, constitute barriers to developing a land ethic, and I want to try to identify a few of them for you. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the first is that we as a <coughs> society, a Western society, have become alienated from the natural world through a number of very powerful uh, forces that we have uh, inherited, uh, some coming from religion, all the way back to Genesis, which lays down man's relationship to animals and plants, uh, to tenets in our science about the nature of the gulf between humans and animals. Animals don't have a soul. Uh, our technology, uh, notions of uh, secularism, uh, relegating the sacred in our public life to the margins, replacing it by uh, scientism, that is the belief that only science can explain the reality around us. Um, these are powerful forces and we haven't uh, inventoried them or confronted these powerful forces, but I think we have to do that. We have to confront and discard those uh, elements in these forces that are a barrier to developing a land ethic for our nation. 
because these forces have placed us upon the path of failed societies seen in world histories, societies that were not able to adapt. The Vikings in uh, Greenland, Polynesians in Easter Island, the Anasazi in the Four Corners area, the Okies in the Dust Bowl, um, and it seems to me the second problem is that we, uh, we uh, have very little guidance to forming a land and sea ethic from our Western traditions. If we look at the historical religions of the world, they don't tell us much uh, about uh, life, that animals and plants are sacred, that we have holy places anywhere but in a few places in the Middle East. Science uh, teaches us that uh, animals don't have soul, that a soul, that there's a gulf between humans. Our religions exalt uh, humans above all other life. And uh, we've developed some cosmologies ways of looking at the land around us, you know, that have arisen that uh, don't provide us much guidance on how to comport ourselves to the natural world. The third uh, barrier, it seems to me, is um, uh, to find this ethic that I've been talking about. Each nation or society or culture must be willing to enter into the ethical realm, to enter a ethical realm, to dig deep in our, into our uh, wisdom traditions, to try to find somewhere an applicable set of wisdom traditions uh, that can help us form a moral compass here sense of right and wrong that uh, every human being, every society, every civilization needs a moral compass. And we simply haven't done that yet. We haven't done that searching uh, uh, examination uh, as a nation yet. And for that reason, we don't have the foundation to address this environmental crisis and we can't answer that paramount question, how should we as humans comport ourselves to the natural world? And this is part of our nation building work that still needs to be done here in America. I want to turn now to uh, offering a few uh, thoughts towards uh, fashioning a land ethic or steps take that possibly could be taken toward developing uh, a land or sea ethic. And um, first say, uh, uh, we don't have to remake the wheel. Um, we have a number of different uh, models available to us that we can look at. Maybe a pick a model or a combination of different models. Um, and I want to go through four of them that have occurred to me. Uh, the first model that is out there is this hunting, fishing, and gathering cosmology. 
of the human race. It's, the, it's uh, uh, mankind's earliest and first, most primal worldview. 150,000 years ago, as humans began spreading across the planet, um, our people were all hunters, fishers, and gatherers. And, and this is our first cosmology teaching us to sanctify uh, the human presence in the natural world, teaching us that we have important relatives in the natural world among the animals and plants, teaching us that we must cooperate with natural processes rather than disrupt and conquer them, um, and there's pockets of this uh, cosmology, but it, the important thing is that it was wired into human biology as we evolved. It made us fully human as human beings. <coughs> and um, there's pockets of this uh, uh, hunting, fishing, and gathering cosmology around the world, and mainly in... Uh, uh, traditional uh, indigenous peoples that still uh, live in their indigenous habitats around the world. I think that we're very blessed here in America to have probably one of the largest uh, concentrations of the world's remaining uh, indigenous uh, hunting, fishing, and gathering cosmologies. Um, and uh, the values that are in these cosmologies may be valuable ingredients. Not saying the entire ingredients, but might be valuable ingredients for forging a land ethic. These cosmologies, these Native American cosmologies, arose from the soil in this part of Mother Earth. And there's, they're seen today in the languages, ceremonies, uh, traditions, ways of life of our uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities that uh, still uh, live in their indigenous habitats. So that's one model. And we don't have to remake the wheel because we have that out there. Uh, the second model is the uh, agricultural cosmology. Uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, humans began to domesticate animals in the Middle East. And um, uh, domesticating animals, domesticating plants. Uh, and this cosmology, which is embedded in the origin stories of the, the religions that come to us from that part of the world uh, uh, exalt humans over all other life on earth. And um, you can see that in the wording and writing of Genesis. Um, it was further cemented in the, this way of looking at the world through our Western science. Teaches us nothing is sacred in the natural world that holy places exist uh, in, in the Middle East and nowhere else. Um, 
And we can, it's a very viable, uh, the beauty of this cosmology is, is that it must uh, justify a strict human control over the biology of animals, uh, their genes, their reproduction, uh, and the same way with plants, uh, to reorder the uh, hydrology, natural hydrology, uh, to make the land more productive. And that's the beauty of that cosmology. It's a venerated tradition, a human tradition. It's 10,000 years old. We have the eyes and ears and minds and heart of, agri of this agricultural uh, cosmology, even though we may have never been on a farm. Uh, we're heir to this way of this uh, particular cosmology. And it's a viable one, it's a venerated one, but it's vastly different from the uh, hunter, fisher, and gathering cosmology and um, looks at the world in a different way. But that's a model. The third model that's out there is conquerors. Conquest is also a very venerable uh, human tradition. And conquerors look at the land uh, as booty, as territory to be seized, uh, and conquerors gaze upon the land as uh, something to be plundered, something to be raped. Um, but conquerors, um, uh, and that cosmology and mindset is, was eschewed by Leopold. Um, he wanted, urged us to change our role as conquerors to uh, cohabitation with the animals and plants. The fourth, uh, the fourth uh, model that's already out there is colonialism. Uh, colonialism um, uh, has been the predominant institution since 1492. For five, over 500 years, the nations of Europe um, competed with each other to colonize as much of the rest of the world as possible. And, uh, uh, we can look at the land and the sea through the eyes of a colonist. Uh, uh, and it basically sees these uh, matters in economic terms, uh, something to be exploited. Uh, but uh, this is a very hard institution on the land. It's an unjust institution takes other people's land. It's hard for a colonist to establish a land ethic with that kind of a mindset. And the institution of colonialism has been uh, rejected by the UN, 1960. And we now live in a post-colonial era. So I wouldn't commend this model to our nation. Too hard on the land and too hard on the people. But for our purposes, we have these four models, uh, and the challenge is to uh, maybe synthesize the best in these particular models and reject the worst uh, from them. I want to know what the Hispanic people think about the land, what our African Americans think of the land, ranchers that have lived on the land, as well as our indigenous peoples as well. You know, how, how should we? as humans look on the land. Um, 
Some other thoughts that I have here on developing a land ethic are these forces that stymie the development of a land ethic. We need to inventory them. And we need to understand these forces, confront them, and discard them if we want to build a land ethic. And I think the first uh, big force that stymies the development of a land ethic is a cosmological problem. And that is the conflict between the hunting and fishing and gathering cosmology of the human race and the agricultural cosmology that, that I talked about. Uh, and, and the agricultural cosmology uh, is a fairly aggressive cosmology, especially when you combine that with the forces of colonialism. And since the rise of that cosmology beginning 10,000 years ago, it has relegated the other human cosmology, the hunting, fishing, and gathering cosmology, only to the margins now. And it just seems that uh, farmers and hunters and fishers and gatherers just can't get along. Um, <clears throat> but um, we need to uh, negotiate a balance and rebalance these two cosmologies and uh, bring about a, uh, a balance between them <clears throat> so that we can uh, uh, try to look into the uh, uh, value system of the hunting and fishing and gathering uh, cosmology. And so we need to restructure that imbalance there. The second is a religious question. As I mentioned earlier, um, um, uh, the religions of the West, the historical religions, have very little to say about man's relation to the natural world. And uh, here in the U.S., we, we've had a history of uh, religious uh, intolerance and discrimination against the religions that do, that is, the indigenous religions. And uh, there has been a growth to compound this problem, a growth of secularism, which has relegated the sacred to the margins. And um, that's been sort of cemented into the law by the Supreme Court and some of the Indian uh, religious religion cases that have gone to the Supreme Court that have placed uh, control over the religion to Congress, that is the secular society that now our religious freedom is dependent on acts of Congress nowadays. <clears throat> but uh, uh, we need to try to restore some of the sacred, it seems to me, in our, especially if we're going to build a land ethic, because without it, uh, this growth of scientism and secularism, uh, it blinds us from seeing the spiritual side of Mother Earth. It robs plants and animals of their souls or their spiritual quality. And it hinders our society's ability to uh, really uh, uh, recognize and appreciate the indigenous contributions that are out there. So uh, we need to find ways to address this religious imbalance among our peoples. The third is this mindset of colonialism. 
this legacy and mindset that we inherited um, is uh, from earlier generations. It, it, uh, it works to um, um, uh, bar, I think, the formation of a land ethic. No land ethic should ever be based on colonialism. Um, and then the fourth uh, barrier, it seems to me, is leadership. The problem of leadership. Who will lead our peoples into a land ethic and a sea ethic? You'd think our agencies would do that, our federal land managing agencies. BLM owns, is the largest land owner in the country. The Forest Service, uh, Park Service, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. But uh, uh, we have a problem of leadership there. These agencies are some structural problems there. They answer to too many masters. They're hamstrung by conflicts of interest. They see the land through the eyes of the hard sciences. Um, and they have these internal conflicts of interest, you know. And so uh, we have this leadership problem. Who is going to forge our land ethic? <clears throat> so we have to identify these barriers. And there's maybe some more barriers out there. But I think they need to be inventoried, uh, confronted, and, and just uh, uh, see how we can go around these barriers that have stymied our people into forming a land ethic. And I think that uh, if we can puncture these barriers that, uh, uh, that in developing a land ethic, there will be a role or there should be a role for Native Americans to have a seat at the table. Um, along with uh, comparative religion experts, ecologists, and, and uh, environmental scientists, um, and other uh, disciplines. Um, and I, I say that based on my 36 years as a, uh, an attorney that has uh, worked with Native uh, peoples in Hawaii and um, um, the lower 48 and also up in Alaska. Um, when I was a staff attorney, currently I, I represent the Comanche tribe in Oklahoma. Uh, our, my law firm also is a general counsel for the Seminole Nation and we do legal work for uh, half a dozen other tribes in Oklahoma. But at one time I was a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund when I first met uh, or Orlith. Um, and uh, there I had a uh, national law, Indian law practice, a very uh, unique uh, legal career. Um, and it uh, exposed me to the indigenous ways of thinking in some very unique legal cases that I handled. Um, I, I was able to, very fortunate to represent some of our traditional uh, tribal religious leaders uh, in areas of uh, prisons, you know, to bring native religion into our prisons, uh, to represent uh, them in trying to protect sacred sites. 
uh, to protect the uh, uh, Native American church's uh, uh, religious use of peyote, uh, to repatriate uh, sacred objects uh, back to uh, tribal communities, even to um, uh, get one foot in the land of the dead, to uh, maybe uh, work with our ancestors to repatriate these dead Indians that are in museums. And I've seen the spiritual relationship in my own tribe, uh, the Pawnee tribe of Oklahoma and our Klamath uh, fishermen, Klamath uh, hunters, Klamath gatherers. Um, and these experiences that I've had uh, lead me to conclude that on this topic, that is the values and ingredients for a land ethic, these indigenous communities have much to offer to us, especially uh, to a modern nation that has long forgotten how to comport itself to the natural world. And so uh, I would commend uh, their cosmologies uh, because they arose from our soil. They're the first cosmologies of our part of the world here. And I think the same uh, can be said for the ocean, uh, for the indigenous peoples who live on the Pacific Rim, uh, as well as deep in the Pacific Ocean itself, um, uh, also have much to offer in my, my experience with them. Um, and they can tell us much about humans ought, how humans ought to comport themselves to the ocean. And here I'm talking about the uh, Inupiat whalers uh, up in Barrow and no, the Nome uh, uh, people in Nome, hunters and fishers there, uh, the people that inhabit uh, Katsabue, Alaska, along the Kuskokwim River, Kodiak Island where all five races of salmon exist, the uh, magnificent brown bears, down to southeast Alaska in the Tungus uh, National Rainforest, America's largest rainforest, into Puget Sound, the uh, salmon tribes here in Washington State, in the, including the macaw whalers, down into um, uh, Oregon, among the, the tribes that live in the upper Klamath and into California on the lower Klamath with their world renewal religions, out into Hawaii and down, all the way down into Fiji in the South Pacific. These people, these indigenous peoples are fighting with all of their might to protect the ocean because their ways of life depend on that. So it seems to me um, the question then is how can we ascertain these values from these peoples and maybe incorporate them into our own laws and policies so that we can uh, uh, place these values alongside of our own and perhaps help us to forge a land and sea ethic? And I, I think the answer to that question is, is, is uh, to the need to empower these indigenous cultures 
so that their culture bearers can be brought to the table. And that's not necessarily an easy task because for centuries we have colonized these cultures, we've belittled them, we've tried to destroy them, we've marginalized them, demonized them, demeaned them, trammeled them, um, and now uh, we can't simply appropriate from them, but rather uh, they must be empowered to uh, willingly come to the table and share their value system and traditional knowledge on this subject with us. And so I think our task is to preserve what little remains and then to empower the indigenous people so we can learn from them, to have the conditions necessary to uh, protect their rights, to uh, recognize them, to respect them, to come to a, uh, a conditions of equality um, so that we can do that. And there's some, some concepts that are out there that can be helpful in that regard. The first being the concept of cultural sovereignty. We have all of our Indian tribes and we're used to the word uh, political sovereignty. But each tribe also has a uh, cultural sovereignty as well, the foundation of the tribes. And um, there's a, a need to uh, not only protect the political sovereignty of Indian tribes, but also the cultural sovereignty that goes along with that. And uh, it's very hard to do uh, in this day and age. Uh, the second uh, uh, thing that is useful here is this new um, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It brings to our nation from the UN a brand new era, a human rights era of federal Indian law and policy and it comes to us from modern international human rights law where the UN went to that body of law and pulled from the existing norms in customary international human rights law, the treaty provisions, the UN human rights treaty provisions, and pulled from that standards that would be applicable for in the unique uh, situation of indigenous peoples so that indigenous peoples would have the same inherent human rights as the rest of humanity already enjoys and takes for granted. Um, and many of these uh, rights pertain to indigenous habitat, lands traditionally used uh, by indigenous peoples to support their traditional economies and ways of life. And in recognizing these kinds of rights and the usages of these habitats by native people to protect them, to recognize them, to change our laws and policies to make sure that they're in environmentally protected areas and these uh, traditional practices are protected. This will, I think, help create the conditions necessary to develop a land and sea ethic. And so um, I want to uh, commend that to you. And uh, let me rush now 
to concluding. I've been up here a long time. <laughs> and uh, I, I would just um, try to sum up here uh, by saying, one, America needs a national land and sea ethic synthesizing the very best from our wisdom traditions. Two, that this ethic must uh, reflect our core values of the American people, something that has a widespread consensus, and it's got to be ingrained into the fabric of our society. Uh, and the starting place and foundation for all land management decisions that guide those decisions. It's got to be a product of social change. Thirdly, that traditional Native American values, teachings, beliefs, and practices are key ingredients. And we need to find a way to bring these people to the table. So I um, uh, would submit that there's a congruency between doing that and forging a land ethic. And uh, I think that for uh, education institutions such as uh, WSU, uh, I would uh, suggest, you know, the need to, uh, uh, for our higher education institutions to somehow uh, amongst your environmental programs and related subject areas to try to structure a dialogue with the Native American sector, um, especially the traditional sector that I've mentioned. Maybe have some uh, uh, round table talks with uh, traditional uh, religious leaders and hunter fishers and gatherers bringing our Native American studies, uh, comparative religion experts, environmental, eco ecological expertise, and have a round table. And maybe develop a white paper of some kind, you know, that uh, would uh, tell us what, what are these traditional Native American values uh, pertinent to a land and sea ethic? Uh, how can those uh, values be incorporated into our social fabric? Uh, how can the agencies, our land agencies, or state and federal government, tribal governments, adopt these uh, values? And to identify the forces and barriers that prevent the formation of a land ethic. I'd like to see a white paper on that subject. Uh, developed here at WSU, and then somebody needs to bring that white paper to the agencies to basically tell them that it's no longer business as usual, that we need a national land and sea ethic. So uh, with that, um, I had a really good conclusion that I wanted to present here but the confines of time uh, don't allow me to do that. I want to uh, thank each and every one of you for your uh, wonderful uh, presence and, and uh, kindnesses. I um, hope that the Great Spirit will be at your side in your studies as you go forward in your uh, 
education here at WSU. And um, again, uh, thank, thank uh, everyone and all of the sponsors. Thank you. Okay, uh, we have time for one or two quick questions. As long as uh, they're easy. Matt? I'm one of two social scientists in the School of the Environment here at WSU, and I find myself in radical agreement with the message that you brought to us today. And it's a message, piece of your message I've been trying to preach on this campus for uh, 27 years. It seems to me that one of the biggest challenges we face is your comments about scientism. That while science and the money behind science drives so much of what this university does, and it's very important and it's very valuable, we lose sight of the fact that the science itself needs an ethical framework around it in order to be applied for the benefit of the society. And that's the piece that we have the hardest time with, seems to me, in institutions like this. Um, and then to bring the, the topic of religion or, or ethic, uh, religious beliefs into the discussion is very, very difficult, given, frankly, the scientific culture of big, universities like WSU. It's a huge problem, and I'm really glad that you've confronted us with it today. No question. So that's, <laughs> I have to repeat Let that. Let me just uh, respond, you know, uh, this scientism uh, that you've identified as a problem here is uh, uh, one that's uh, certainly in all of our higher education institutions and society as a, as a large, uh, uh, at large as well. Um, but I think, uh, uh, and scientism is different than science. Yes, uh, it it, it uh, basically, scientism is the attitude or the mindset that, that um, science and only science, the hard sciences, are the only path to wisdom. And uh, that we have no answers that can be found from philosophy, from religion or any other source of uh, human wisdom to define the reality of the world around us, you know. And, and um, uh, our comparative uh, re uh, religion scholars, uh, the leading one uh, that I like the most is uh, Houston Smith, has uh, talked about this scientism and the need to uh, uh, bring the sacred back into the discussion. You know, it has a place. And um, people like the late Vine Deloria have written on that problem as well. So um, that's a, a good comment. Thank you. Um, what with most of the incentives, especially in reference to our government and passing policies, with most of those incentives lying in not acting upon something like this, because a lot of our government was funded by larger organizations or individuals who are elected by people who don't think that this is an important issue. How do you suppose we can go about encouraging such an ethic to be created when all odds are against it? That's a good question. Um, it's one of the powerful forces that prevents a land ethic. Um, that is looking at the land as a colonist to and only in ex economic terms to e exploit the resources. And I have that in, in my home state in Oklahoma. The oil and gas companies rule the state. 
and they're, they're doing this unchecked um, fracking, as I mentioned earlier, uh, at will. And they're steamrolling the entire state uh, and without any regard, you know, for our fresh water supply. <laughs> and uh, why? Money and power. And so um, um, uh, you, you've touched on one of the powerful forces in our society that has uh, precluded that, that we've, we don't want to talk about ethics here. We look at the land as a colonist. And that's a mindset that we have to uh, discard, it seems to me. We're no longer an abject uh, colony that is uh, devoted to exploiting the resources for foreign elites. And I don't think we're a settler state anymore. You know, we, we have uh, manifest destiny has sort of run its course. And I think we're now ready for a more mature society. And it's a... It's a uh, uh, a matter of social change, you know, and I think that we need to demand um, uh, a rethinking of our relationship to the land, you know, and, and confront that society to stand our ground uh, on it, you know, and so that's a, that's a challenge, and I think it's, obviously it's for the younger generation, because my, my generation has been an abject failure at that. And so I, I give this challenge to you young people here. One last question in the back there. Good evening, yeah, yeah. thank you for speaking here. Um, my name is Renee Holt, and um, I just wanted to ask you personally um, what your, you mentioned the UN and um, the Indigenous Peoples Forum, the new UN Indigenous Peoples Forum, and um, I, you know, with the People's Climate March that's coming up, there's a, a faction or a group of people from the indigenous community who are responding to the UN's uh, Indigenous Peoples Forum by saying, we're going to continue and have our own dialogue because you're not sending, or see, uh, sending our message to the UN. I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I really, uh, I actually thought the UN Peoples Forum was a great opportunity that we would be heard and um, in, and since then I've learned that it, it really isn't so, that it's a very selective process and you mentioned something about how we're post-colonial, yet it's very power structured because the people, the, the real people, the indigenous people aren't actually able to get through so they have select um, delegates, right, and there's a vetting process and it's very um, colonizing I guess and so what are your thoughts on that if you would please? Yes. Um, that, that uh, is a, a difficult question for me to answer because I'm not familiar with the uh, inner workings of that. Um, I've never been to the UN and I've never represented a client there um, and I'm not uh, versed in their uh, processes there. Um, I do know that, uh, that um, in the last 20 years, uh, international uh, law has really grown, human rights law, and the main thrust is uh, indigenous rights, indigenous human rights. And uh, I know that there's a lot of jockeying going on uh, for indigenous peoples to access the UN now to get a seat at the table after not having one for 500 years in the international realm. 
I think that every uh, Indian tribe should have, appoint their own uh, tribal government ambassador to the UN and credential that person with tri tribal government uh, credentials and so that the tribe knows who's speaking for the tribe there. Uh, I have to commend the people that have been working in that forum for the last 20 or 30 years. They've made, uh, produced this landmark human rights declaration. They were pioneers in, in doing that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is most of them don't speak for the tribes. They don't represent the tribes. And I think our tribes, uh, we have a self-determination policy in the self-government and we speak for ourselves. And so I think that the tribes uh, need to uh, insist on appointing their own representatives and getting them a seat at that table through the tribal government and not have uh, someone from Timbuktu speaking for the tribe, you know, and that's just my ph philosophical uh, uh, framework for looking at that. But I don't know the uh, details of doing that. My main concern is not um, necessarily continued access at the UN because we already have that UN declaration. My concern is how to implement these standards in the USA. How, how will um, uh, the uh, Forest Service implement all of these human rights standards? How will the state of Washington fisheries agencies um, do all of that and so that's that's my concern as a domestic uh, practitioner of federal Indian law so um, I, I can't gi I can't give you anything other than that okay so. uh, before I uh, ask you in joining me in thanking our guest we have a small presentation from a student Sharice Reyes Thank you very much. Let's see. <laughs>